0: Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 11 For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children which God hath given me For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now let's just recap and get the flow of thought then, as we've had it in this section. We've seen that he's picked up again after the warning section in verse 1 down to verse number 3, He's picked up again in verse 4, this theme of the superiority, the supremacy of Christ. And in particular, he's speaking about the supremacy of Christ in relation to angels. Christ, the Lord Jesus, is greater than angels. And each of these Bible classes, we've been explaining how or why that was such an important thing to people with an Old Testament heritage and the role of angels in the Old Testament economy. So when you come to this section, you discover this, that he starts to teach that as a man, the Lord Jesus, the world to come is being put under his dominion, not under the dominion of angels. And we saw that the other night. And then we saw the flow of thought, that whereas Adam, the first man, failed in his dominion, Christ is the perfect man. And he had to become a man to restore the dominion that Adam lost. And then from the bit that we've read now from verse 11 and verse 12 down, we discover that he expands that thought. And he's going to give three more reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ had to become a man, truly became a man, his perfect incarnation. So as a man, he will have dominion over the world to come. That raises the question, was he a real man? Yes, he was. And we're going to see why it was the case, three reasons tonight, why it was important, in fact, why it was essential that he should take on manhood. So first of all, we come to verse number 11, and it's the subject of sanctification. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, he's spoken about in the previous verse, in verse number 10, about the Lord Jesus as the one who is bringing many sons unto glory. He's also called him the captain of our salvation, of their salvation. So he is the one who's bringing us, many sons, to glory. He's saving us. Now, in order to do that, he had to become a man. And as a man, he is not ashamed to call us brothers, brethren truly became a man so it says he that sanctified and that's the Lord Jesus that's the one who puts the believer on the path to glory that's the one as I mentioned who's the captain of our salvation he's the leader of our salvation and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit he is leading us on what some people call the sanctification road it's a life it is that he sets us apart to God and then he's continually setting us apart to God until finally we arrive in glory. Someone has put it this way, finally into glory, where all through the ages we'll grow more and more like the Lord Jesus. We will never become him in an absolute sense, but we will be like him. There are certain things about Christ which are unique to himself. So he says, he's the one who sanctifies. Then he speaks about they who are sanctified. Now that's us. That's the saints. So Hebrews 10, for example, verse 8 to verse number 10 says this, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified, through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all now Westcott points out that the present tense in these in this verse the present tense participles mark the continuous personal application of the work of christ so he's the one that sanctifies we are the one who are being sanctified being saved being set apart being taken to glory by the captain of our salvation now he says this about he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, he says, we are all of one. We are all of one. Now, that literally means out of one. Common source is in view. Now, some of your Bibles interpret this in their translation. For example, the New American Standard would indicate that the common source is God the Father. So they would speak about the fact that we are born again, we are children of God, just as the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, and speak about the common source, the fatherhood of God. I don't think in the context that's really what it means. In what way are we all of one in this context? Well, he goes on and tells us, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers, family, The context is favouring, in my view, our common human nature that the Lord Jesus took on in his incarnation. The main point is just this. Jesus had to come down. The Lord, the Son of God, had to come down and become a man in order to die. We've seen that. In order to taste death for every man. The contrast is not so much our change, but his change. So it says this. He that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified are all of one, and on that basis is not ashamed. For which cause? Because we have the same source. The Greek word for brother means from the same womb, from the womb of humanity. And this oneness is established now by three Old Testament quotes. So this might seem a bit of a technical point, but it's an important point. It's just this, that the Lord Jesus and us have now something in common, whereas before we had nothing in common. He was divine. Before his incarnation, he was in the glory. He was not a man. There was so little we had in common. But now in his incarnation, he has come down as the captain of our salvation to lead many sons to glory. And he's the sanctifier And now he's not also ashamed to call us brethren. He came right down to where we were. Now that's established in verse 12, the first of three Old Testament quotes. It says in verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now that's a a quote from Psalm 22, and that great messianic Psalm. And you've got a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, prophetically calling saints brothers. It's the most messianic psalm, I think, in the Bible. And it describes in great detail the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ centuries before that was known as a means of execution. The Lord Jesus cites from the psalm, as we know, on the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The psalm describes the mocking, describes the physical suffering and torture of the Lord Jesus, describes even the gambling for the Lord's clothes in great detail. But it also speaks about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as well. So not simply the idea of his death and of his suffering, that is there, but also his crucifixion and his resurrection in fact, when you get to Psalm um, when you get to Psalm twenty two verse twenty one, that section ends with the cry, Save me from the lion's mouth, and the confident affirmation comes back from the horns of the wild oxen you will answer me. There's the radical change of triumph at the end of that psalm. So he says in the Psalm, I will declare thy name. Now that refers to God's character, his attributes, his grace, his mercy. In the midst of the church, now that's the Greek word ecclesia actually, but of course the New Testament church isn't in the Old Testament, so the word really is in the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee, and this quote is establishing, in the Old Testament a prophetic passage, seeing the Lord Jesus post-resurrection with joy amongst those he calls brothers, so we see it anticipated in the Old Testament. One writer said this. Wuss says this. The writer to the Hebrews quotes this statement not for its contextual value, but only to give scriptural verification to the statement in verse number 11 that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. We see it in the Old Testament. And then there's two further quotes in verse 13 to establish it. From Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 17, which is the messianic, one of the messianic sections of Isaiah, because you, in chapter 7 and verse 14, there's a familiar prophecy about the virgin bringing forth a son his name should be called Emmanuel chapter 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and right in the middle of that is chapter 8 verse 17 and this also is messianic prophecy and it speaks about the fact that with the Lord Jesus Christ as a man was trusting God as other men ought to trust God he was a real man here and like his brothers his fellow men was walking a pathway of faith as all men ought to whilst here upon earth and so he says I will put my trust in him that's the context of that quotation and then the last quotation is in verse 18 and again see, he makes a different point and he is identifying himself with those he came to save behold I and the children which god hath given me so he identifies himself with those he came to save that's a whole subject in the children that god hath given to me john 6 verse 37 refers to those who come to him as those whom the father gave to him here he calls us his children and so that's the whole idea it's a different idea different uh, theme but it's speaking here about the identification of christ with those he came to save brothers identified with in true humanity so for sanctification it required the true humanity of the lord jesus now we come to something that's perhaps a bit uh, clearer you come down to verse number 14. And the second reason for him truly to become a man in this section is to break Satan's power. To break the power of Satan. So he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. I love this little section. This is one of the first sections of the Bible after the book of James. I ever studied, and I'm not quite sure why, it might well have been because of verse number 9, we see Jesus made a little lower, but this whole section I remember I had a wide margin Bible, as I do here and I had one of these little pens rotating pens, and I remember putting little annotated annotations around about the text and this section is worthy of study because the detail is fascinating in relation to the incarnation and in relation to the the, the, the manhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The detail is important. So let's just look at the detail of it. So he says, For as much, then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, or blood and flesh as it really should be. Now that word partakers there means to have a share in common with someone else. Commonality. So the children, flesh and blood, Or, as I said, the order in the Greek text is blood and flesh. Now, the reason for that is that the rabbinical writers used that technical phrase of blood and flesh to speak about human nature in contrast to God. It was a phrase that they used. So he says, the children... Now, if you think about that word, children, what's he speaking about? Well, he's used the word children in the previous verse... In verse number uh, 12, when he was speaking about brethren in, sorry, verse 13, I will put my trust in him again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So he goes on to say, for as much then as the children, speaking about men and women, are partakers, have in common blood and flesh. Now that's true. So we all have this, we don't have much in common physically, I suppose, but we've got this in common. We all partake of the same blood and flesh. Commonality within humanity. Then he says this, likewise. Now that word likewise is made up of two parts. So it's made up of little word para, which means alongside. And another word, which I can't pronounce, which means nearby. So when you bring this word into this verse, the Lord Jesus, in his incarnation, took his place alongside the rest of humanity. So here is the whole of humanity. We've all got something in common. Flesh and blood. The Lord Jesus Christ takes his place right alongside us right alongside us. How did he do that? Well, it tells us he likewise takes his place right alongside us by this. He took part of the same. That's a different expression from partake. Took part of is made up of two words, echo, which means to hold and meta, with. So he took hold with or hold of. This is something he did, not passively, but actively. The Lord took hold of human nature without its sin in his incarnation. He held it to himself. He became a man, thus taking his place alongside the rest of humanity who have this in common, flesh and blood. We had no choice in the matter. We were born without any active decision-making choice or whatever on our part. So we were born with that commonality. The Lord Jesus actively made a decision to take that on and thus associate himself in this way with the rest of us. He came right down to where we are. Now, why ever would he do that? Well, Westcott puts it this way. He says that partakers marks the characteristic sharing of the common fleshly nature as it pertains to the human race at large. Whereas, took part of speaks of the unique fact of the incarnation as a voluntary acceptance of humanity. He deliberately became a man. Now, the reason why he became a man, we've seen, was that he might die. The reason why he needed to die is that through his death and resurrection, here in this context, he was able to accomplish something that otherwise could never be accomplished, which was to break and diminish the power of Satan and Satan's greatest weapon. So it says in the verse, follow the, 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 the train of thought, for as much as the children are partakers have in common flesh and blood, He also himself, likewise, came right down beside us by taking part, voluntarily accepting and taking on the same flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So here's the purpose clause. That he might, through his own death, destroy Now, that word destroy means to diminish. It means to bring to naught, to render inoperative. Satan was not annihilated at the cross, but his power was broken through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer did he have dominion as he once had. Spiritual death cannot hold the person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are born again. Before we are saved, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Once we are saved, we are made alive. We are quickened. We are brought to spiritual birth and life. Death cannot hold us. Physical death cannot keep the body in the grave any longer, as it once did. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ provides the believer with eternal life and also the guarantee of of his resurrection the power of death broken Satan had that power he had a sovereignty he had dominion over man with his power of death and look at verse 15 as a consequence he is able to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage
1: so, we're no longer in fear of
0: death. Not in its ultimate sense. We may fear dying, but we're not in fear of death itself. Because death has lost its power. This is the difference between the funeral of a Christian and the funeral of someone who's not a Christian. This is the great hope of Christianity that the act of dying and dying itself is traumatic and painful. But death itself holds no fear for the believer. Its power has been broken. It's not the end. It's not just the unknown. And it's all traced back for the Christian to the fact that Jesus Christ came and was born and died as a man, a true man and rose again from the dead and broke the power that Satan had in death. Once and forever. So it says here that we are delivered... ...who through fear of death... ...were all our lifetimes subject to bondage. That's what death does. It binds an individual. Causes us to be fearful. But that no longer is the case for the Christian. And so it says here... ...that he has delivered them... ...who through fear of death with all their lifetime subject to bondage and then he begins to summarize this bit and he says in verse number 16:4, truly he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of abraham now that expression to take on isn't referring to taking something on as if you're going to wear something or bear it to take on is to lay hold upon something for the purpose of helping so he did not take on him and if you've got an authorised text you'll see that the expression the nature of is in italics which means it's been inserted into the translation to give sense but I think it actually changes the sense the idea is this that he took not on angels he did not lay hold upon angels with the purpose of helping them, Christ didn't die for the angels, Christ wasn't the the angelic redeemer but rather it says he took on the seed of Abraham he came past the angelic realm right down to the realm of mankind right down to earth itself he wasn't incarnated as an angel he was incarnated as a man he didn't die for angels he died for men and women this is the point here and so right down to where we were right down as a man to help men is the idea here and that expression seed of Abraham I would judge does not limit his saving uh, scope to Israel but rather I think he's speaking about those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham those who come to him in faith And you get that in Galatians 3 verse 29. If ye be Christ then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's the spiritual seed of Abraham which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And I think you get that from the absence of the article in the Greek before seed. It's not the seed, it's just seed which emphasizes the character as opposed to a particular group of people. So he does not take on, he does not come right down to help angels. He comes past them and he comes right down. And he blesses those with salvation who have the characteristic of faith that we find the father of as Abraham. So two things here. Sanctification. He became a man that he might sanctify us. Right down to where we were. Secondly, he became a man right down to where we were. Here in this little section In order to destroy the power of Satan. Because it required the perfect sinless saviour to die. And to break Satan's power by rising from the dead. What a marvellous thing it is. To think that that power has been broken at the cross. And Satan in his demonic madness brought about as far as he could see. the The crucifixion and destruction of Jesus the Son of God, but actually he was bringing about his own destruction because it was through that death and resurrection that Satan lost his power and he was destroyed at the cross. Then thirdly, the third reason why the Lord Jesus became a true man is his priestly ministry here in the last little section of the chapter in verse 17. So it says, Wherefore, In all things Here's the kind of summary In all things It behoved him to be made Like unto his brethren Now that's an important expression Because At the time that this was written And subsequent to that time There has always been A doctrinal push To diminish the true manhood Of the Lord Jesus Always to say that, well, you know, he was like men, but not a real man. To say that, well, he wouldn't have suffered pain and all the things. That, it says here, in all things, in all things. And so it's not that he appeared to be human or seemed to be human. He became a complete human being, apart from sin, in every aspect. You see, his body functioned as a human body was designed to function. So it required food and rest. He had emotions. There were limitations. His body was not omnipresent. He was in his body in one place at one time, not two places at the same time. There was a proper humanity taken on by the Lord Jesus and it says this that in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren so he lived as we live apart from sin he lived as a true man upon earth which is absolutely vital in order for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest now Later on in this book, when the priesthood of the Lord Jesus is being expounded, the qualifications of Aaronic priesthood are given. And then there is the the idea introduced of the Melchizedek priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And the writer is careful to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus fulfilled the requirements in the Old Testament of a priest and then fulfilled the picture in the Old Testament of the Melchizedek priesthood but he was able to be a merciful and faithful high priest because one of the qualifications of priesthood was that every priest was taken from among men so in other words the man who represented other men had to know what he was talking about had to live the same life, experience the same things, sympathize, empathize. He had to be able to connect with the people that he represented before God for that representation to be meaningful. It's the same with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, in order to be our great high priest, had to have lived here, experienced all that we experience, to be able to enter into the ups and downs of life and the pressures. And the opposition and so forth that we experience here upon earth. And that enables him not just to be a high priest, but to be a merciful and a faithful high priest. That word merciful tells us that the Lord Jesus is never harsh, does not lack compassion One writer said he needed to be merciful so that he could help the miserable, raise up the fallen, relieve the oppressed. He knows exactly the sort of trials that we face in life. And so he can be merciful because he's been here. He's faithful. He's lived a life of perfect obedience to the Lord. Culminated in the cross, that act of perfect obedience, you can trust him. He's faithful, never let you down. He's merciful. He won't be harsh and lacking compassion. He's perfectly qualified to be our great high priest because he was here as a man upon earth. Well, it says that he, is, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now that takes us to that particular role of the high priest in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement. And you remember that day when in a very symbolic fashion the high priest represented the people before God. And there was a great number of of regulations and ceremony and the high priest had to go in before God with sacrifice, with blood, atonement had to be made, and he represented the people before the Lord. We've been pointing out quite often in recent times that when you come to the offerings in the book of Leviticus, none of these offerings in terms of sin and trespass offering, peace offering, burnt offering, meal offering, none of these offerings dealt with The deliberate, intentional and known sin of an individual. It was unintentional sin. It specifically says it. Sins of ignorance. Sins that you didn't know but discovered or didn't mean. And then you wanted to confess. But what about all the rest of the sin? What about all the rest of the transgressions? Well, as a nation, on this day these were the issues that were coming before the Lord A sacrifice was made and you've got the scapegoat and so forth and the the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and there was going to be sacrifice and there was going to be atonement made it was the day of atonement for the nation and it required the high priest to go in well he first of all to make atonement for the place and then for himself but it required him to be able to go in representatively on behalf of the nation Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the one who's merciful and faithful because he had been here as a man and lived here and could represent us before God. But more than that, he was able to make reconciliation for the sons of the people. Now, this isn't really the word reconciliation, even though in the authorised it's translated as such. The NIV translates it as atonement, which again is not the best The RSV is expiation. The ESV is propitiation. And it would appear that propitiation is the idea here to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You know, in very simple terms, the word propitiation speaks about the turning away of God's wrath as a consequence of a righteous sacrifice. The appeasement of God on a righteous basis. When you think about atonement, atonement is very much linked with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word atonement appears time and time and time again. And on the basis of animal sacrifices that anticipated the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, there were these temporary offerings which were frequently offered, regularly offered, that could never put away sin, but that covered over sin. Only because they anticipated the sacrifice of Christ, God was prepared to have sin atoned, covered, temporarily, in light of a coming sacrifice, which was why there was so much regulation about these offerings, because they all had to point forward to Christ. They all had to anticipate Christ and his sacrifice, which is why you can then reverse it, go back to the offerings, and learn about the sacrifice of Christ in the typical teaching in those pictures and anticipatory sacrifices because they had no value in themselves the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin so within themselves intrinsically there was no value the death of an animal to deal with the sin of an individual couldn't do it but god in his mercy allowed these sacrifices as anticipatory sacrifices of Christ, as pictures of Christ to be slaughtered and for their sins to be atoned, to be covered over. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And he comes not to make a temporary atoning sacrifice, not to cover over sin, but to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And his sacrifice is described in the New Testament as a propitiatory sacrifice. As a once for all sacrifice that satisfied God's righteous requirements against sin, appeased his wrath, not just for sins in the future, but for all those sins in the past that were covered. And the work of Christ had that retrospective idea within the timeline of history. but of course, God is eternal and doesn't work within the timeline of history. But within our perspective, going way back through the ages of history, way forward into the future, all of sin dealt with, in that sense, by the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. And God's righteous wrath against sin was appeased. What a sacrifice it was. Romans chapter 3 speaks about sins past, sins yet to come, sins present. John Owen uh, writes this, that in his opinion, in his study, he had come across four elements in propitiation. Number one, an offence or crime has occurred and needs to be taken away. Number two, a person has been offended God himself. He needs to be pacified or reconciled. Number three. There's a person offending. They need to be pardoned. Number five. A sacrifice or other means of satisfying God requires to be offered. And in all of that, you find the work of Christ. He offers himself. He makes reconciliation for the people This is the picture Then you come to verse 18 In verse number 18 it says For because he himself has suffered when tempted He is able to help those Who are being tempted What a high priest we have You know the high priest in in the nation of Israel Did not just function one day a year He functioned really every day of the year And because the Lord Jesus has suffered being tempted, he knows the full force of temptation. In a manner, one writer says, that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know it because we cave all the time. The Lord Jesus knows the full force of it. What good would another who has failed be to us? It's precisely because we have been defeated that we need the assistance of him who has never been defeated. Who has experienced the full blast of temptation and withstood it. And so he is able to help. It means to run to the aid of those who cry out for help. And God's word promises this that we have a great high priest. He's been here. He died for us, rose again for us. He knows all our circumstances. He's been tempted in all its fullness. Therefore, he's able to help to succour them that are tempted. The Lord Jesus Christ's manhood, his perfect manhood, is absolutely vital for our salvation. We have seen that it is significantly taught here that he is superior to angels. So he is. But remember this he was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. He voluntarily stepped down, even though superior. For a short time he became lower than angels in order to die. And he became truly a man, not just to die, but that he might destroy him that is the power of death liberating us from the fear of death which kept us in bondage and then also able to minister to us. The one who has made propitiation is the one who can succor us on an ongoing basis as our great high priest. And it's all because he was willing not to take on the nature of angels, not to take on angels and their plight, but to come past angels right down to us and meet the need of humanity by his own sacrificial death on the cross. A true man, a real man. And the marvellous is this, that today is, as we finish now, that real man is in the glory, having lost none of his manhood as he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. A glorified man, In the glory, our great high priest. It's unusual to think, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus is there, with all his life experience, able to help us when we are tempted. May the Lord bless his work too. Let's just finish.